Hello, Michelle here. There's something I need you to know about. It's called Australian True Crime Plus. For just a couple of dollars a month, you can get extra episodes, including Ask Us Anythings with Emily and I, early access to our weekly episodes, shout outs and the complete back catalogue and all of it ad free. You can become an Australian True Crime Plus member by hitting the link in the show notes or on our Facebook page. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. Say the main things to keep in mind are that no one's a monster, that there are very few monsters, but there are many people who hurt other people within the right circumstances. Nothing is often as clear or as concrete as we think. Our guest for this episode is Melbourne-based forensic and clinical psychologist Dr Ahona Guha. Ahona works at the pointy end of mental health and treatment. With people who have clinical presentations of harmful behaviours, and those who have offended against others. Sexual offences, including against children, violence, stalking, arson, to name a few. Some of the people she works with are women who have been violent, including to their partners and children. It's not easy to find a clinical specialist in this space 
who will go on the record to talk about the complexities of offending, especially in discussion around intimate partner violence. As you'll hear Ahona mention, the defined answers we understandably seek about violent offending, like that people are either victims or perpetrators, doesn't always give the full picture. But an important point she makes is that while we should seek to understand the factors that contribute to violence, it should never be excused. First, Ahona explains the differences between her public forensic work and private clinical practice. I work within the broader public forensic mental health space as well as in private practice, largely within the field of trauma. Um, I should probably stop here just to provide a quick kind of caveat and say that even though I work in the public forensic mental health space, I'm here as a subject matter expert and, and all of my views are my own. When we are thinking about clinical psychology, largely thinking about people who work with serious mental health disorders, and if we are thinking about forensic psychology, that's largely where people work at the intersection between the legal system and the mental health system. I work within a couple of public forensic mental health teams, so people who hurt other people in relatively significant ways, um, also work within the custodial correctional spaces. And I can hear I can hear doggy that footprints in the, background? in the background, which doesn't surprise me because oftentimes people who work in the mental health space are pet lovers and have pets and, you know, yeah, they're, they're a very big part of uh, maintaining our own mental health, Especially aren't they? Especially after the pandemic, I think I've done lots and lots of Zoom-based therapy and I have, I've, I've had pets, I'd say, in about half of them, whether my own or someone else's. Do you, but, but we also know though that uh, I'll say oftentimes, and feel free to correct me, people who hurt people have hurt animals in their past. As an animal lover, um, when you're when you're you know in a clinical situation with somebody and and that's part of their story, um, how do you cope with that? That's a really good question. So I suppose to answer the first part first, mm. it's not super common for people to hurt to hurt people to hurt animals. Okay. As well, um, I have lots and lots of clients who have hurt people in a range of ways, but are very protective of their pets. Um, there's a little bit of a crossover when there are some of the more sadistic or maybe psychopathic traits, but that's a very tiny percentage of the population. Look, I find animal abuse really hard to work with personally. Um, we all have the things which touch us and the things that are harder to work with. Some of my colleagues who have kids, that's obviously people who sexually offend against children. Animal abuse is one that I typically find difficult and have to put a lot of self-care around when I do encounter that. Is there anything that you would refuse to treat? Is there any, could anyone ever come to you and say, okay, this is me and I need help with it? The other day in the office, we were having a conversation about, oh, I can't remember how we got around to it. I think fascinating groups that we've read about on the internet or something. And we all got around to having done a little bit of reading about, um, people who have been diagnosed as clinical pedophiles and, but they are, um, yeah, non-contact pedophiles, people who haven't had sexual contact with children, but that is their sexual impulse. And we all had read stories about people who said they'd presented to clinicians, to psychiatrists and psychologists and asked for help and been turned away. That's certainly a population that I, that I do work with. So within the team that I work with, we treat people and we assess people who are at higher risk of, of engaging in relatively serious offences against the person, including sexual offending against children. Um, 
we do see a range of people, and I've certainly seen people who have offended against children and people who have the urges but haven't. I'm very comfortable working with all of those presentations because really as a clinical and forensic psych who chooses to work at the pointy end, that is the work I do, that is the work I've chosen to do. There'd probably still be people within that within that realm I would want to seek some more supervision around, but I can't think of a certain type of harmful behaviour that I would say a hard no to. It's more clinical presentations where that's not my, not my scope of practice that I'm really careful about. So that... There is a non-contact or a community of non-contact pedophiles. Would that be fair to say? I think that there are people who are sexually attracted to kids, but they aren't actually going to act on it. So in terms of an actual community, I think that there are some online spaces where people would probably congregate, none that I'm fully aware of. And I think there are a couple of projects like the Dunkel Project in Germany where, where people can actually go for treatment. Um, so there are quite a large proportion of people who might have some sexual attraction to kids but won't ever act on it. I guess I think our listeners would want me to ask you, in your opinion, do you think pedophiles can be treated and can... Absolutely. That's a big proportion of the work we do within the teams I work in. Um, there's actually a relatively low reoffending rate amongst people who do offend against children, and I'm talking about sexual reoffending, so people who go and who go and engage in that same offense again. But even amongst those treatment, um, certainly within my team has been shown to be highly, highly successful in terms of getting people to manage their behaviors. It may not take away the attraction or the urge fully, but it does or it can rather stop stop people from offending. And all of this is with the understanding that most people who um, attack children or uh, sexually aren't actually pedophiles, right? They're, they're generally crimes of, of opportunity. Absolutely. And I think that that's a great point because I think every time there's an offence against a child, people talk about pedophiles and use the word very, very loosely. But really, a lot of sexual offences against people and especially against children would be more opportunistic in nature than driven by a very fundamental attraction. Oh, Hina, what for me, I'm thinking, well, if these offences are opportunistic as opposed to a, a pedophile who has that specific attraction, what drives that opportunistic um, thing? Like, why do they do it? Yep. So it could be simple things like intoxication sometimes. Um, there are people I've worked with who, and often within the child sexual abuse category, people who do offend in that way tend to be very anxious, have extremely poor social skills, struggle to maintain age-appropriate relationships. They might find themselves in a space opportunistically with, with a child um, later at night when, you know, no one no one else is, is around and things escalate. So those are the other factors because I think when we say, oh, they're oftentimes opportunistic and there's alcohol involved, that, that gives everyone else the opportunity to say, Oh, come on. When I drink too much, I eat a chicken roll from the 7-Eleven. I don't like sexually offend against a child. But there has to be like these other Ab factors. Absolutely. So, yeah. you know, we aren't we aren't talking about people who are who are absolutely pro-social who then who yeah. then go and go and go and get drunk because we've all yeah. been drunk at different points in time and haven't offended mm. against against kids. There's typically underlying psychological factors mm. which um which are really then catalyzed by possibly the substance intoxication, maybe the lack of presence of, of a protective 
family member, a range of things. A lot of the time people do not want to hear that alcohol can be a contributing factor in offending. I can see how it is um, because people think, oh, you can't give excuses. Alcohol is not the reason why people offend. But the way you're framing it, it makes sense. Do you find that public understanding about the nature of offending and the complexity around it is helpful or harmful to the conversation about how we treat people? I think the public discourse around most sorts of offending is people like to look for really black and white answers. So things like intimate partner violence happens because of gender norms. Um, child child sexual offences happen because, you know, people are, people are twisted pedophiles. Um, mm-hmm. Their words, not mine. I yeah. think um, that's a relatively problematic space for us to be in because when we think about offending, it's very multifactorial. And by which I mean, there's lots and lots of factors which will come together to to have a certain offence happen at a certain point in time. So when I think about substance use, I think of it more as the trigger. So you've got a range of factors, you have a range of things and the gun is loaded. Substance use, whether that's alcohol or say methamphetamine, is just the trigger that pulls the gun. But it's not, it's not the gun. You talk about a lot of issues that other people either don't want to talk about or in some cases just simply refuse to believe, just don't believe exist, don't believe in. Um, One of the issues that you work on is um, violence in which women are the offenders. And we've we've been talking about that a little bit lately. I don't know why it's taken us this long to sort of come around to, well, actually, no, that's not true. I do know why. We've wanted to talk about it for a long time, but we've found it really difficult to find guests, to be honest. It's hard to find clinical guests who will speak to it because they say, yeah, look, I do work in it, but it's so political. I don't really want to go on record talking about it. It's hard to find victims who will speak about it. It's hard to find victims' families who'll speak about it. And it's impossible, in my experience, to find offenders who'll speak about it. So, yes, thank you. For, for being prepared to speak about it because we feel like we, we have a lot to learn. Oh, look, I think it's certainly somewhat political, but I think it is very important to be to be talking about some of these things openly. Otherwise, they stay hidden. There's certainly a lot happening within the female offending space at this, at this point in time. You know, um, thinking about the women's prison, that's, um, I think, received a few billion dollars for a big expansion. As you said, these are things that people either don't talk about because they don't know about or they don't want to know about them or it's very uncomfortable to stop and think about this. So I'm really curious as to as to what the answer is. You probably have your finger on the pulse a little bit more because, you know, the world I'm, I'm in is one where we all talk about this. I found myself admitting to myself and to other people that my attitude really and truly is when I hear of a woman murdering her partner... I assume that he deserved it and that's the truth. And and th- that is an ingrained attitude that I have grown up with and that I find that is unspoken. When I've run that past other people, they've all said to me, yeah, that's what I assume too. And, of course, you know, I feel ignorant and I feel cruel and I feel all of those things that you feel. So um, that's my, my sense of it is that it's one of those cliches Unfortunately, 20 years ago, people were saying, why doesn't she just leave? And I feel like now we're still saying, oh, well, he must have been an asshole." 
Yeah, I think you're talking about the very neat black and white answers we have, right? So women as mm. victims and men as men as perpetrators yeah. and this thought that maybe even if a woman is a perpetrator, there has to be a good kind of reason why and maybe she was actually victimized first, which is often true, but is not always true. And I've certainly worked yeah. in in the correctional space with a range of women who've done a number of difficult things. They've um, sexually offended against their own children. They've killed their partners. They've killed their children. They've stalked people, arson. Um, this is kind of the bread and butter of the work I do daily. A lot of these women have been have been victimized. Some of them haven't. And I'd say that even if they have been victimized, that's not always directly related to the offense. And also, as I was told recently, um, putting my place and I needed to be, those two things need to be separated, don't they? If a man has victimised a woman and then he's been murdered, he is still a victim of murder and also his family are still victims of having had their family member murdered. I think it's I think it's very important not to excuse violence. I think we can look for ways to try to explain it, maybe. And part of that might be looking at, at a perpetrator's trauma history, which is the case whenever I do a assessment, regardless of whether the person I'm working with is male or female, I'll look for a trauma history because that gives me a sense as to how they operate in the world. And you know, things like things like whether they see the world as dangerous. Um, but I think it's really important to work with the premise that even if you've been hurt, that doesn't give you the right to hurt other people. And that's the firm message I give all of my clients, regardless of whether they're male or female. Dr. Troy McEwen, who I'm sure you are, yeah, you know Troy, right? You're both academics, you're both women, you both work in this space where you're working with male um, perpetrators, but also victims of domestic violence. And she, she's the person who pulled me up that I just mentioned when, uh, when I was saying, yeah, but surely most of the men who are victimised by women, you know, who are victims of, of domestic violence by women, surely they have hurt the women first. And she was like, well, yeah, maybe they have, but that doesn't excuse, you know, she said it's, it's usually this cycle of victims becoming offenders, offenders becoming victims, you know. Um, and people can move anyway. back and forth between the different roles as well. And I think yes. one of the things I've seen within the intimate partner violence space is that there's this really strong idea that um, people are are either victims or perpetrators. And one of yes. the things we know um, increasingly coming out within the research is that there's often mutual or what we call bi-directional violence, which is both, both parties offending against the other. Often, though, I will say against a woman, the you know, violence is certainly more more intense and possibly more lethal. Yeah. So there are bigger consequences, but I think people will shift back and forth between the roles really commonly. And that's not something that we talk about a lot within the space. I think we're still sitting within the family violence space around men are perpetrators, women are victims. And I want to say in about ugh, very, very hard to put stats to it, but I'd say in at least half of the cases I work with, there's there's typically been mutual abuse, um, often not been reported to the police. And when I talk to the male perpetrators about it, they say, well, the police are just going to laugh at me. Or if they have gone to the police, the police have just laughed at me. Well, interestingly too, I, I don't think that men accept that. I remember visiting a male prison and doing a talk and we got around to the conversation of domestic violence. And I ask the men what they think about a woman slapping a man's face in an argument. I said, isn't that domestic violence? And they all said to me, no. And I said, why not? And they said, because women are smaller. Women can't, it's not 
fair. It's not, you know, they were adamant that if I slapped my husband's face, I wasn't committing domestic violence. I've actually had a lot of clients say to me and I've and I've had to point out to them that hey when that when that happened to you that was stalking or that was actually technically considered family violence and they mm. say no well she's smaller which is which is fair you know I'm not I'm not arguing against that because because we do know that lots and lots of women are hurt awfully so I'm not saying that that this doesn't have a strong gender element but I am saying that community attitudes are in a very interesting space at this point in time. Mm. And there does seem to be this prevailing view that women can't hurt men. And so when I asked both Troy and uh, one of our friends, Narelle, who's an old copper, retired copper, when I said to them, why do you think these couple of cases um, of women killing their ex-husbands or husbands have involved arson? It's It's so brutal. They both came back with the same answer, which was, because the women are physically smaller, they've needed to employ uh, a method that subdued them quickly. Yeah, and um, that's probably why we see a lot more cases of men men killing women. I think that's because the physical harm that a man can perpetrate is probably far far more intense than a woman can. And fast. And I say that I say fast because it seems to me that these things happen. And again, this comes from old coppers in the intensity of a second, a a regrettable, you know, second. Look, a lot of the family violence perpetrators I've worked with, and I'm talking more men now because not a lot of women are coming before the justice system at this point in time as, as perpetrators, but a lot of the men talk about things that they did when they were very emotionally dysregulated so they weren't able to contain and calm themselves fights start to happen and we know that offenders typically struggle with things like impulsivity and problem solving Mm. before you know it things have things have blown up and obviously for you and I if things were to blow up we'd probably yell and slam the door but for people who are more entrenched in a violent way of being or might be on you know alcohol or Meth at the time, things can things can take a really really nasty turn. I think you know, and also we all have to admit that it depends on how we're going in life. I mean, yeah, I'd like to think that I don't, I I wouldn't reach a level of emotional struggle where I could harm somebody terribly. But we know that we can snap some days, depending on how what else is going on in our lives. If we haven't slept, or if we you know, anyone who's had newborns or anything like that, or you know, we all know that sometimes we're more emotionally regulated than other times. And absolutely true, though. I think it's really important to know that all of us could do could do harmful things given given the right circumstances. Yeah. I mean, sometimes when I walk around places like a prison, I think there, but for the grace of God, go I. And I'm mm-hmm. and I'm not religious, but yeah, it's a couple of little steps. Maybe some good parenting, having a dad who worked, so I so I yeah. had some good muddling. Having a dad who stayed. Having a dad who stayed. Yeah. Having good kind of parenting, going to school. These are the very simple things which probably separated me from some of my clients, that it's not us versus them, that any of us could be them really. Mm. And there's something I've been thinking about. I think we've spoken about it before, but, and it's something that probably is a bit controversial. Sometimes there are combinations of personalities or Mm. in relationships People get together and it might just be that dynamic that produces a very toxic, combustible combustible situation. Now, I don't intend to ask this because I'm 
trying to excuse any violence that happens in a relationship or victim blaming or anything like that. But it makes sense to me that sometimes there are people who do not work together. Like that's just a fact. So I'd just be really keen on your your observations about that being, is it bullshit or is it actually true? I think you're quite on the money there. Um, and and again, not to not to go down the victim blaming pathway, but just to talk about the difficult sorts of sorts of relational dynamics created. If you have someone who is really, really anxious um, about about attachments and about closeness and someone who is really avoidant and mm. just pulls away, that's going to be a really difficult dynamic. Uh, one of the things I've seen when I'm working with stalkers is that they often won't stalk every partner that they break up with. There's often something about a certain relational structure, and that's not to blame the victim again, but something about something which happens in that space, which means that they attach a little bit more closely or they find it hard to shake the relationship or there's a lot of awkward to and toing and froing after, you know, the relationship ends and there's poor boundaries or there's poor communication, which means that they then engage in stalking within a specific um, partnership. I think it's often the same with intimate partner violence as well. I have worked with perpetrators who, who haven't offended in certain relationships. Mm. I think it's about the type of communication which happens, the attachment patterns, the way each couple engages in conflict management, the way they engage in problem solving and the way they can both manage emotions. And I think it's one of the last sort of ongoing problems around our understanding of intimate partner violence because so many people use that as defence, don't they? They call a previous partner to give evidence and say, he never hit me. And everyone goes, well, there you go. And he was with her for 20 years and he never laid a hand on her. So why should we believe this one who says that he... Yeah, I find that really interesting. I mean, Johnny Depp's doing it oh right gosh, now. You don't know? even don't even get me started on the whole Johnny Depp and Amber thing. It's so problematic what we're doing to poor Amber at the moment. And I'm not Thank saying you that so she's, much. Michelle's been I'm furious. Absolutely yeah. on this. No, I'm very angry about that because we are yeah. effectively victim blaming terribly there, and we're um, giving people who have been abused some really, really problematic messages because it's very absolutely. clear that Johnny Depp from what I can see, sitting sitting on the outside, engaged in some very problematic behaviours toward her. Oh, and she's and she's provided so much evidence, video, audio, written. Exactly. <sighs> and you know, so this so this question of well, he didn't offend against a former partner, so this has to be her fault. I don't I don't really buy any of that because it doesn't really matter because people change and you can yeah. be very different in one relationship to the next. After the break, Ahona talks more about women offenders who are in prison and secure forensic settings who have harmed or killed their own children. Thanks to our patrons, Eve McKenna, Ashley McLean, Mary Gordon, Renee Murray, Liz Patterson, Mel Parker and Tanya Lovett. Thanks for your support. We really appreciate it. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. How do women sort of traditionally we're told, um, you know, we all have this imagery in our minds of prisons and what happens in them. And um, we're told that women who offend against their children, for example, are hated and never forgiven and all those things. So what happens to women traditionally in prison who you spoke a little bit earlier about the fact that you work with women who offend against their children, sometimes sexually, sometimes sexually and and with violence. Um, In your experience, how do they live in prison? How do they cope? How are they treated? And then how does that affect your work with them? Look, I guess one of the things I'll say is that there's so much shame around these types of offences, which I understand fully. I understand the sheer public horror and the anger, but the internalised shame a person carries when they have engaged in something like, like this is huge. Speaking about the prison setting, most people who engage in this form of offence would probably be in what we call protection, which is a separate unit, um, because there's a lot of anger, a lot of hatred toward them. So when you're in protection, you're largely kept within the one unit 24-7. You can only go out on the on the broader compound when the rest of the prisoners aren't, aren't there. So it's almost a prison within a prison, um, which can be difficult, I think, at times, because it really restricts what they can access. There's also their own grief to deal with. Typically, women who offend in this manner will lose their children. They'll often lose family and friends. So they are quite isolated within the prison. There's their own defences around what's happened. There's often perpetrator trauma. Mm. Killing a child It's often a relatively difficult and a violent act. And just working through that can be really hard when there's this very strong avoidance mechanism because it's so hard to think about people just shut down. Most, well, I won't say most, but lots lots of women who do engage in this form of offending become very suicidal at a certain point, especially when the fact of what they've done kicks in. Um, so that's something difficult to manage within any form of custodial or a mental health setting. Um, the work is hard. The work is slow. For me, the work is largely about helping someone see that I understand or that I'm trying to understand what might have led them to do something like like this, that I'm not judging. And I think that that's really important, that I'm not sitting there holding hatred toward them. I want to ask you this question. I'm sure there's no answer. Why do they do it? Why why do women kill their children? I mean, I, I feel racked with guilt 
when I realised my son doesn't have his jumper at school and it's cold. But then at the same time, like I know kids are hard and I don't want to be overly judgmental, but it's like it's really impossible for most of us to understand how a person could take that extra step. How, how does it happen? I think I think that sort of horrified questioning that, that that space you're sitting in is a good one because that's often where people come from, but then they move past that to the intense judgment because they probably don't want to think that they are capable of it. You're so right, yeah. But if you think about a baby, a baby is very vulnerable. All it takes with a baby is to shake them. Um, yes. You could do an anger yep. and you could do that because you're because you're frustrated, because you may be drug affected, mm. because you're very mentally unwell. I think it's a little bit different when we talk about older older children. So I work mm. with people who have engaged in acts of filicide across across a range of ages. I think there's often major mental illness in some form or another, something which affects a person's capacity to think and to reason logically. There's obviously moms who are floridly psychotic and think that their babies are possessed or um, think that someone's after them and is going to come and kill them and kill their kids. And so they actually engage in what we call an altruistic act, which is because because they are unwell and because they aren't reasoning properly, they actually kill their own child themselves. How often do you come across cases in which, um, yeah, women have have committed an act like that in the midst of, of a, an episode and then once they're in prison and they're medicated properly? Yeah. Yeah, they, they come out of that episode and, and have overwhelming regret. It's a very rare act to, to, to happen anyway. And there's probably mm. only a handful of people within the Victorian system who have engaged in an, in an act like this. But for most people who do kill their kids or, or hurt them seriously because they are mentally unwell and then get treated, we know that that's one of the highest risk times for suicide mm. because, it, because it really sinks in. And Ahona, with the reasons women and men kill children, I have read a bit about this, but I think you'll know better. Often when women kill children, it is the altruist, altruistic, that word seems weird, but the mental health condition as opposed to men who are motivated differently. And there's been studies on that. Um, is, is that correct in what I'm saying? I'm thinking through this clinically because I have read the studies and I know that people who kill their kids just the baseline rate is so high that it's that it's actually hard to kind of generalize out and look at look at the whole group. What I've seen in women who've killed their kids or women who've tried to, it's been more around mental health as well as that sense of I want to protect my child from something and not being able to reason well because yeah. because they aren't well. Um, some of the men who've drifted past my desk, they had they have been themes of anger revenge toward um, ex-partners, I think. I think it's so complicated, isn't it? Because when you actually sit and think about this, and I think that's why a lot of people don't want to hear it, when you actually think about things, you think, right, there's many elements to this. There's many situations where this happened. There's background of trauma. And I wonder if, is there something in the conversation around violence generally in society, but in particular around violence against women and children. Is there stuff that we in the public are not understanding that your, you and your colleagues in the clinical fields would like to see pushed out a bit more, but maybe it's maybe it's not the right time. Maybe we just can't 
it can't be put in the space of where we're at with this conversation. I think the conversation has historically been a really difficult one and it's there's been a lot of blame directed toward female victims. There's been a lack of acknowledgement around, I think, the real seriousness of, of intimate partner violence. I think the conversation that we're seeing now has come from that space where it's taken advocates a lot, a lot of time, a lot of really intense work to get to the point where it's seen as a social problem. I do feel like at this point in time, the causes of intimate partner violence, and I'm speaking as a forensic psychologist, we focus on the on the intra-individual causes. So what's happening inside a person to cause violence. So very, very different to the you know, broader sociological explanations. But I largely think that the causes are bigger than gender norms, um, which is probably one of the more controversial things I could say. And I've you know, worked worked in the family violence sector myself. So, can you, can you um, explain that a little yeah. bit more, please, please? Because I feel like, as a layperson, I don't really understand what you mean by that. So, what do you what do you think? If I were to say, no, um, I think you're wrong. I don't know. I think the cause is gender norms. What am I actually saying? <laughs> so, when we talk about gender norms, we're largely talking about things like men have more power and control than women. Uh-huh. So, the current belief is that is that some of those beliefs are largely what what cause intimate partner violence. Ah. I think that that's a factor and I'm not going to say that it's that it's not a factor because it certainly is for a range of cases. So toxic masculinity toxic or, masculinity, or whatever. which is absolutely a thing by the way. Yeah, of course. So it's like is it that you think we think that oh the cause of um, domestic violence is that Men are feds and men are just aggressive and um, that's just the way men are. So it's the way men, men are, but but also there's this sense that, um, largely speaking, men think that women are less than them or less yeah. powerful, less. So basically sexism. So I think that that can be a part of some intimate partner violence. It's certainly not the case for for all intimate partner violence cases and and even where it's a part of what causes it it's not the whole picture and that's controversial that you think it's that, very it? controversial i think oh. um because broadly speaking the field at this point in time holds the views that gender norms are what cause ipv and that to stop this happening we need to treat treat some of these attitudes and beliefs and look we certainly oh. do but there are other factors like there are with all forms of offending. So things like emotional dysregulation, mental illness, substance use, histories of trauma, problem solving, impulsivity, personality disorder. I mean, it's very reductionist to to think mm. that, that there's this really big problematic behavior which shows up in a range of ways, all the way from texting someone um, continuously to murder and there's just the one mm. cause of it which is gender norms it's like saying rape happens because boys don't understand consent and I think that that's just bollocks yeah. I think even what you were saying earlier about oh different relationship styles and if someone's you know has an anxious relationship style and they are with someone who's emotionally withholding and I thought even being able to have that conversation, even understanding relationship styles, and could have that conversation without it devolving into a, an argument. Because well, it because it does, and I I I wasn't I spoke with Megan Norris, who actually wrote the book about Cindy Gambino's story. From her experience, she's done a lot of reporting on stalking. She's not an expert, but she's worked in years talking with people, women who have been um, who are survivors of family violence, and we spoke about borderline personality disorder and 
I thought we were quite careful in how we did it. I don't claim to understand it. And I do know that there is a discussion about women being dismissed as crazy or this or that when they have mental illness. But we got quite a bit of backlash about talking about borderline personality disorder. And listeners, I'm not saying that people on the spectrum or people with ADHD or people with other mental health illnesses kill people. But of the offenders who were convicted, Megan was saying that some offenders had coexisting conditions. We we work with people who are at, who engage in some really high risk um, interpersonally harmful behaviours, so behaviours directed toward the person, and they are some of the more complex people within the Victorian system, which is largely why they come to us because we do that individualised one on one therapy. I would say the majority would have problematic personality traits or or a personality disorder of some form. Um, narcissistic personality disorder is relatively common, but so is BPD. So lots and lots of people who have borderline personality disorder are never going to harm someone else, but there will be a small percentage of people who find it really, really difficult to try to inhibit impulses, to who, who aren't able to manage emotional and will respond by by eventually lashing out at, at other people. So it's one of the things we screen for and certainly one of the things we see very commonly within the offending population, whether you're talking about the, the people that we work with or just just the general prison population. So I think it's important not to stigmatise mental health and I'm really careful not to, but I think it's also important to be responsible and important to be to be actively looking at what, what actually causes offending and not shutting down conversation simply because it might it might hurt someone or it might yeah it might it might upset somebody um because yeah absolutely it's got to play a part it's uh, it feels like it's part of that conversation we were having earlier about life pressures we all have pressures and then if, when you fold in certain other pressures that some of us have and you know some of us also have mental illness and then some of us also lost our job yesterday and then some of us also have a neighbour who's, um, you know, always antagonising us and then some of us, all, you know, I think... Or our pet, our pet dies. Yeah, is it, that, is it potentially tipses. or some of us had a bad, bad parent, you know? So you've got a bucket. Mm. We all have a range of concrete or, or a certain amount of concrete in the bucket. For mm. some of us, we'll have things like mental illness, a trauma history, substance use. All of that stuff is set in stone and difficult to shift apart apart from the substance use. Yeah. And then it takes just a little bit for the, for the bucket to then overflow. But the rest of us will either have a bigger bucket because of the safe upbringing we've had, because of the education, mm. employment, friends, or we just don't have as much concrete so we can absorb a lot more. So I think it's really important to be, you know, when we do think about offending and crime, to be looking at things as often being very situational, which mm. doesn't take away a person's responsibility, but it does right. change this concept that someone's a monster because they've done something. Absolutely. Uh, another issue around family violence is that, I mean, there's still some conjecture as to the definition of some aspects of family violence, isn't there? I mean, for example, slapping children is something that when I was a child was a de rigueur, my friend, a daily and many times a day. And whereas now I personally couldn't bring myself to slap my children, but I, I know there are still people who do. And, and I mean, can I tell you this, by the way, my kids can't believe this. When I was a kid in primary school, boys were still caned. 
Girls weren't, isn't that funny for sexism, but little boys for offences like talking too much, like not even bad things. I know my dad got strapped at school, but that was back in the 60s and stuff. And my mum was really quite seriously um, beaten at a Catholic primary school. I went to school overseas and they did engage in some really awful forms of corporate punishment, so much that I think that some of my teachers were a little bit sadistic. Oh, yeah. I think you raise a good point there. Lots of what we know about offending and about crime is that it's very culturally defined. Yeah. So things like hitting hitting children now now being considered violence is shows shows that we are generally changing societal attitudes. But anytime when you're inflicting force against someone else, regardless of whether that's a child or an adult, I would consider that to be violence. Well, also, I think now that I am a parent, I think of the intention of it because I think, are you in control or out of control? Because I look back at my childhood and realise, oh, I think there were some times when you just wanted to hurt me. (laughs) And and does it help? Does it help Mm. is the other question because we know punishment doesn't help, which is, I suppose, one of the things that I struggle with working as a mental health professional within the correctional space. And we know that punishment isn't the best form of changing behaviour. So no. by hitting someone, whether that's an adult or a child, are you are you changing anything? Mm. Absolutely not. This wasn't a, a, you know, this isn't a kind of formalised bend over, whack, whack. You know, when you think about that kind of a person losing their temper and wanting to hurt the thing that's making you angry and that thing is a child. That's, like, that's, that's a very that's different abuse. scenario. That's yeah. abuse. That I think it's a shame that that happened to you. That's a shame that that happens to many people. Yeah, it happens. You know, it certainly, it certainly happened to me as well. And, mm. um, yeah. Ahuna, with your experience within a field that most of us are not privy to, we are never going to see the things you see. Mm. We'll only read about certain things in the media. What are you, do you think are the most important things for people to understand right now about violence, about mental health and about where we're at in how we need to shift conversations or even policies? I feel like we're at a particular place and it's really important to be at that place, but I sometimes feel like it, it isn't safe to talk about certain things where I really think they should be. I think say the main things to keep in mind are that no one's a monster, that there are mm. very few monsters, but there are many people who hurt other people within the right circumstances. I'd say that there's a range of factors which do cause any form of violent behaviour and really important to be aware of those and to be thinking through some of those instead of falling into really neat black and white answers. I'd say that nothing is, yeah, nothing is often as clear or as or as concrete as we think. The offending treatment space is going relatively well if you're thinking about what we can do differently. I think a lot more needs to be done within the intimate partner violence treatment space because all of the treatment programs offered there are what we call the men's behavior change programs. So interestingly, nothing specific for you know women who do who do engage mm. in family violence. But also all of these programs are based on what they call the general Duluth power and control model. Um, so talking talking about gender norms primarily, whereas we know that there's, that there's a lot of other things that do contribute to family violence. So unless we treat all of those things, we are not going to see a lot of shifting within the space. And that's probably one of the concerns I hold, that we're doing a lot without a lot of results in the family violence space at this point that's in time. That's so true. I, you feel, I feel like the, our terrible record of roughly one woman a week murdered in Australia by a partner or a previous partner 
has been static, if not slightly increasing for many years now. And yet it's the source of constant consternation and governments have reviews and inquiries and, and, but it's not budging. So obviously it's not working. Look, my observation has been that there's not a lot of forensic expertise in this area at this point in time, that a lot of work is done by the victim survivors, which I think is really important when you are working with, with you know, victims. But mm. when you're working with offenders, I think it's really helpful to have people who could be perpetrator informed and people yes. who understand offending behavior. My observation personally has been that that's not really been happening. Um, and I'm curious to see what happens within the space. But it feels like unless that shifts, we're probably not going to see a lot of shifting within the rates of of, of intimate partner violence. Yeah, I feel like there's not a lot of will to listen to offenders. It's the same around the pedophile um, conversation, I think. People don't want to talk about it and they don't want to hear from pedophiles, but you think, well, don't you want to understand if you want to prevent the offending, well, they're exactly who you need or who we need to be listening to and but uh, also you know. looking looking at the research done by people who work with them. So we know in the intimate partner violence space that there's an entire body of forensic psychological research talking exactly about the things I talk about, which is not at this point in time really being drawn into treatment programs. Yeah, that's crazy. Mm. Is that because they are reluctant to or because listening to the expertise of people who are working in that field, I guess, challenges what we are being educated about, and rightfully so, we get educated about a lot of this stuff, but is it because it's kind of, it muddies the waters a bit? I think there's an ideological split. And look, when I work in the offending space, I prefer not to bring an ideology. I like to see what what the research actually shows us. But I think that at this point in time, because it's been so hard to get funding for you know, family violence and domestic violence, there's been a strong push to not lose any of that funding, possibly. There might 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 be strong urges to ensure that work stays within the general victim you know, survivor space. I think, again, to bring it back to the beginning of the conversation, I think my attitude, and I think it's pretty representative, is if a woman murders her husband, it's because he was an asshole. And secondarily, if a man is a domestic violence offender, he is never going to change. He is an asshole. There's no point talking to him or hearing from him. I And I think we, we tend to demonise them and we don't think they have anything positive to offer. And this this person's a bad person because they've yeah. done this and because they can't change. Yeah. And obviously I'm in the business of change. Um, yeah, yeah. And of seeing people as people and not monsters. Yeah. And look, I have worked with lots of people who have who have been been able to very successfully change some of their behaviour. So I'm never going to say that people can't change. I think it takes protracted effort and time, but it also takes really good interventions. Because if you think about it, Offering a person a treatment which doesn't work is like trying to treat a broken leg with with, with aspirin. Yeah. So I think if you're asking me about general what, what can we do around the violence space, I'd say looking at the broader range of factors and trying to trying to formulate interventions based less on maybe ideology but more on what the research shows works would be mm. would be really helpful. 
Um, within the mental health space, I think understanding that talking about these things isn't about stigmatizing people and that we shouldn't be stigmatizing people. We yeah. should be talking not only about mental health, but also about mental illness, because, mm. because the two are very different constructs. And we talk mm. a lot about mental health because it feels safe. We don't talk about mental illness. Understanding how that can feed into things like offending, understanding appropriate treatments, thinking about being more trauma-informed, I think is really important. Especially yep. working within the within the female perpetration space, because so many women offenders have really strong trauma histories. You know, yep. some of the most horrific things I've heard of. Yeah, yeah. I think that those those are the main things which come to my mind, which are on my wish list. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Ahona Guha. Ahona has written a book on trauma that will be released in twenty twenty three. She writes regularly for online publications on a range of topics, including relationships. There's links to her work in the show notes for this episode. Thanks to our patrons, Tanya Simpson, Sarah Chayner, Trish Morpeth, Ryan Webster, Anna, Jessica Kennelly. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, recorded at a Hub Australia media studio. HubAustralia.com. Find the workspace that's right for you. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. 
If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.